Chapter Six of K. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mary Lou in New York City. K. By Mary Roberts Reinhardt. Chapter Six. The same day Dr. Max operated at the hospital. It was a Wilson day, the young surgeon having six cases. One of the innovations Dr. Max had made was to change the hour for major operations from early morning to mid-afternoon. He could do as well later in the day. His nerves were steady, and uncounted numbers of cigarettes did not make his hand shake, and he hated to get up early. The staff had fallen into the way of attending Wilson's operations. His technique was good, but technique alone never gets a surgeon anywhere. Wilson was getting results. Even the most jealous of that most jealous of professions, surgery, had to admit that he got results. Operations were over for the afternoon. The last case had been wheeled out of the elevator. The pit of the operating room was in disorder towels everywhere, tables of instruments, steaming sterilizers. Orderlies were going about, carrying out linens, emptying pans. At a table, two nurses were cleaning instruments and putting them away in their glass cases. Irrigators were being emptied, sponges recounted and checked off on written lists. In the midst of the confusion, Wilson stood giving last orders to the intern at his elbow. As he talked, he scoured his hands and arms with a small brush. Bits of lather flew off onto the tiled floor. His speech was incisive, vigorous. At the hospital, they said his nerves were iron. There was no letdown after the day's work. The interns worshipped and feared him. He was just, but without mercy. To be able to work like that, so certainly, with so sure a touch, and to look like a Greek god, Wilson's only rival, a gynecologist named O'Hara, got results too, but he sweated and swore through his operations, was not too careful as to asepsis, and looked like a gorilla. The day had been a hard one. The operating room nurses were fagged. Two or three probationers had been sent to help clean up, and a senior nurse. Wilson's eyes caught the nurse's eyes as she passed him. "'Here, too, Miss Harrison,' he said gaily. "'Have they set you on my trail?' With the eyes of the room on her, the girl answered primly, "'I'm to be in your office in the mornings, Dr. Wilson, "'and anywhere I'm needed in the afternoons. "'And your vacation? "'I shall take it when Miss Simpson comes back.' Although he went on at once with his conversation with the intern, he still heard the click of her heels about the room, he had not lost the fact that she had flushed when he spoke to her. The mischief that was latent in him came to the surface. When he had rinsed his hands, he followed her, carrying the towel to where she stood talking to the superintendent of the training school. "'Thanks very much, Miss Gregg,' he said. "'Everything went off nicely. "'I was sorry about that catgut. We have no trouble with what we prepare ourselves, but with so many operations. He was in a magnanimous mood. 
He smiled at Miss Gregg, who was elderly and gray, but visibly his creature. That's all right. It's the first time, and of course it will be the last. The sponge list, doctor. He glanced over it, noting accurately sponges prepared, used, turned in. But he missed no gesture of the girl who stood beside Miss Gregg. All right, he returned the list. That was a mighty pretty probationer I brought you yesterday. Two small frowning lines appeared between Miss Harrison's dark brows. He caught them, caught her somber eyes, too, and was amused and rather stimulated. She is very young. Prefer him young, said Dr. Max, willing to learn at that age. You'll have to watch her, though. You'll have all the interns buzzing around, neglecting business. Miss Gregg rather fluttered. She was divided between her disapproval of interns at all times, and of young probationers generally, and her allegiance to the brilliant surgeon whose word was rapidly becoming law in the hospital. When an emergency of the cleaning up called her away, doubt still in her eyes, Wilson was left alone with Miss Harrison. Tired, he adopted the gentle, almost tender tone that made most women his slaves. A little, it is warm. What are you going to do this evening? Any lectures? Lectures are over for the summer. I shall go to prayers, and after that to the roof, for air. There was a note of bitterness in her voice. Under the eyes of the other nurses she was carefully contained. They might have been outlining the morning's work at his office. The hand lotion, please. She brought it obediently and poured it into his cupped hands. The solutions of the operating room played havoc with the skin. The surgeons, and especially Wilson, soaked their hands plentifully with a healing lotion. Over the bottle their eyes met again, and this time the girl smiled faintly. "'Can't you take a little ride tonight and cool off?' he asked. "'I'll have the car wherever you say. A ride and some supper? How does it sound? You could get away at seven. Miss Gregg is coming.' With an impassive face, the girl took the bottle away. The workers of the operating room surged between them. An intern presented an order book. Moppers had come in and waited to clean the tiled floor. There seemed no chance for Wilson to speak to Miss Harrison again. But he was clever with the guile of the pursuing male. All eyes on him, he turned at the door of the wardrobe room, where he would exchange his white garments for street clothing, and spoke to her over the heads of a dozen nurses. That patient's address that I had forgotten, Miss Harrison, is in the corner of the park and Ellington Avenue. Thank you. She played the game well, was quite calm. He admired her coolness. Certainly she was pretty, and certainly, too, she was interested in him. The hurt to his pride of a few nights before was healed. He went whistling into the wardrobe room. As he turned, he caught the intern's eye, and there passed between them a glance of complete comprehension. The intern grinned. The room was not empty. His brother was there, listening to the comments of O'Hara, his friendly rival. "'Good work, boys,' said O'Hara, and clapped a hairy hand on his shoulder. "'That last case was a wonder.' I'm proud of you, and your brother here is indecently exalted. It was the Edwards method, wasn't it? I saw it done at his clinic in New York. Glad you liked it, yes. 
Edwards was a pal of mine in Berlin, a great surgeon, too. Poor old chap. There aren't three men in the country with the nerve and the hand for it. O'Hara went out, glowing with his own magnanimity. Deep in his heart was a gnawing of envy, not for himself but for his work. These young fellows with no family ties, who could run over to Europe and bring back anything new that was worth while, they had it all over the older men. Not that he would have changed things. God forbid. Dr. Ed stood by and waited while his brother got into his street clothes. He was rather silent. There were many times when he wished that their mother could have lived to see how he had carried out his promise to make a man of Max. This was one of them. Not that he took any credit for Max's brilliant career, but he would have liked her to know that things were going well. He had a picture of her over his office desk. Sometimes he wondered what she would think of his own untidy methods compared with Max's extravagant order, of the bag, for instance, with the dog's collar in it, and other things. On these occasions he always determined to clear out the bag. "'I guess I'll be getting along,' he said. "'Will you be home to dinner?' "'I think not. I'll, uh, I'm going to run out of town and eat where it's cool.' The street was notoriously hot in summer. When Dr. Max was newly home from Europe, and Dr. Ed was selling a painfully acquired bond or two to finish the new offices downtown, the brothers had occasionally gone together, by way of the trolley, to the White Springs Hotel for supper. Those had been gala days for the older man, to hear names that he had read with awe and mispronounced most of his life roll off Max's tongue old Steinmetz, and that ass of a Haydenreich, to hear the medical and surgical gossip of the continent, new drugs, new technique, the small heart-burnings of the clinic's student scandal, had brought into his drab days a touch of color. But that was over now. Max had new friends, new social obligations. His time was taken up, and pride would not allow the older brother to show how he missed the early days. Forty-two he was, and what with sleepless nights and twenty years of hurried food, he looked fifty. Fifty, then, to Max's thirty. There's a roast of beef. It's a pity to cook a roast for one. Wasteful, too, this cooking of food for two, and only one to eat it. A roast of beef meant a visit in Dr. Ed's modest-paying clientele. He still paid the expenses of the house on the street. Sorry, old man, I've made another arrangement. They left the hospital together. Everywhere the younger man received the homage of success. The elevator man bowed and flung the doors open with a smile. The pharmacy clerk, the doorkeeper, even the convalescent patient, who was polishing the great brass doorplate, tendered their tribute. Dr. Ed looked neither to right nor left. At the machine they separated, but Dr. Ed stood for a moment with his hand on the car. I was thinking up there this afternoon, he said slowly, that I'm not sure I want Sidney Page to become a nurse. Why? There's a good deal in life that a girl need not know, not, at least, until her husband tells her. Sidney's been guarded, and it's bound to be a shock. It's her own choice. Exactly. A child reaches out for the fire. The motor had started. 
For the moment, at least, the younger Wilson had no interest in Sidney Page. She'll manage all right. Plenty of other girls have taken the training and come through without spoiling their zest for life. Already, as the car moved off, his mind was on his appointment for the evening. Sidney, after her involuntary bath in the river, had gone into temporary eclipse at the White Springs Hotel. In the oven of the kitchen stove sat her two small white shoes, stuffed with paper so that they might dry in shape. Back in the detached laundry, a sympathetic maid was ironing various soft white garments and singing as she worked. Sidney sat in a rocking chair in a hot bedroom. She was carefully swathed in a sheet from neck to toes, except for her arms, and she was being as philosophic as possible. After all, it was a good chance to think things over. She had very little time to think, generally. She meant to give up Joe Drummond. She didn't want to hurt him. Well, there was that to think over, and a matter of probation dresses to be talked over later with her Aunt Harriet. Also, there was a great deal of advice to Kay Lemoyne, who was ridiculously extravagant before trusting the house to him. She folded her white arms and prepared to think over all these things. As a matter of fact, she went mentally, like an arrow to its mark, to the younger Wilson, to his straight figure in its white coat, to his dark eyes and heavy hair, to the cleft in his chin when he smiled. You know, I have always been more than half in love with you myself. Someone tapped lightly at the door. She was back again in the stuffy hotel room, clutching the sheet about her. Yes? It's Lemoyne. Are you all right? Perfectly. How stupid it must be for you. I'm doing very well. The maid will soon be ready. What shall I order for supper? Anything. I'm starving. Whatever visions Kay Lemoyne may have had of a chill or of a feverish cold, were dispelled by that. The moon has arrived, as per specifications. Shall we eat on the terrace? I have never eaten on a terrace in my life. I'd love it. I think your shoes have shrunk. Flatterer, she laughed. Go away and order supper, and I can see fresh lettuce. Shall we have a salad? Kay Lemoyne assured her through the door that he would order a salad, and prepared to descend but he stood for a moment in front of the closed door for the mere sound of her moving beyond it. Things had gone very far with the pages' border that day in the country, not so far as they were to go, but far enough to let him see on the brink of what misery he stood. He could not go away. He had promised her to stay. He was needed. He thought he could have endured seeing her marry Joe had she cared for the boy. That way, at least, lay safety for her. The boy had fidelity and devotion writ large over him. But this new complication, her romantic interest in Wilson, the surgeon's reciprocal interest in her, with what he knew of the man, made him quail. From the top of the narrow staircase to the foot, he had lived a year's torment. At the foot, however, he was startled out of his reverie. Joe Drummond stood there, waiting for him, his blue eyes recklessly alight. "'You, you dog!' said Joe. There were people in the hotel parlor. Lemoyne took the frenzied boy by the elbow and led him past the door to the empty porch. 
Now, he said, if you will keep your voice down, I'll listen to what you have to say. You know what I've got to say. This failing to draw from K. Le Moyne anything but his steady glance, Joe jerked his arm free and clenched his fist. What did you bring her out here for? I do not know that I owe you any explanation, but I am willing to give you one. I brought her out here for a trolley ride and a picnic luncheon. Incidentally, we brought the ground squirrel out and set him free. He was sorry for the boy. Life not having been all beer and skittles to him, he knew that Joe was suffering and was marvelously patient with him. Where is she now? She had the misfortune to fall in the river. She is upstairs. And seeing the light of unbelief in Joe's eyes, if you care to make a tour of investigation, you will find that I am entirely truthful. In the laundry, a maid, she is engaged to me, Joe said. Everybody in the neighborhood knows it. And yet you bring her out here for a picnic. It's, it's damned rotten treatment. His fist had unclenched. Before K. Le Moyne's eyes, his own fell. He suddenly felt very young and futile. His just rage turned to blustering in his ears. Now be honest with yourself. Is there really an engagement? Yes, doggedly. Even in that case, isn't it rather arrogant to say that the young lady in question can accept no ordinary, friendly attentions from another man? Utter astonishment left Joe almost speechless. The street, of course, regarded an engagement as a setting aside of the affianced couple, an isolation of two, whereas marriage itself was more a solitude a deux. After a moment, I don't know where you came from, Joe said, but around here decent men cut out when a girl's engaged. I see. What's more, what do we know about you? Who are you, anyhow? I've looked you up. Even at your office they don't know anything. You may be all right, but how do I know it? And even if you are, renting a room in the page house doesn't entitle you to interfere with the family. You get her into trouble and I'll kill you. It took courage, that speech, with Kay Lemoyne towering five inches above him and growing a little white about the lips. Are you going to say all these things to Sidney? Does she allow you to call her Sidney? Are you? I am, and I am going to find out why you were upstairs just now. Perhaps never in his twenty-two years had young Drummond been so near a thrashing. Fury that he was ashamed of shook Lemoyne. For very fear of himself, he thrust his hands in the pockets of his Norfolk coat. Very well, he said. You go to her with just one of these ugly insinuations, and I'll take mighty good care that you are sorry for it. I don't care to threaten. You're younger than I am, and lighter. But if you're going to behave like a bad child, you deserve a licking, and I'll give it to you. An overflow from the parlor poured out on the porch. Lemoyne had got himself in hand somewhat. He was still angry, but the look in Joe's eyes startled him. He put a hand on the boy's shoulder. You're wrong, old man, he said. You're insulting the girl you care for by the things you are thinking. And, if it's any comfort to you, I have no intention of interfering in any way. You can count me out. It's between you and her. Joe picked his straw hat from a chair and stood turning it in his hands. Even if you don't care for her, how do I know she isn't crazy about you? My word of honor, she isn't. 
She sends you notes to McKee's. Just to clear the air. I'll show it to you. It's no breach of confidence. It's about the hospital. Into the breast pocket of his coat he dived and brought up a wallet. The wallet had a name on it in gilt letters that had been carefully scraped off. But Joe did not wait to see the note. Oh, damn the hospital, he said, and went swiftly down the steps and into the gathering twilight of the June night. It was only when he reached the streetcar and sat huddled in a corner that he remembered something. Only about the hospital. But Lemoyne had kept the note, treasured it. Joe was not subtle, not even clever, but he was a lover, and he knew the ways of love. The page's rumor was in love with Sidney, whether he knew it or not. End of chapter 6